Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. One of the good things about being a journalist is the privilege of meeting politicians to discover the true hidden secret of Westminster. Despite the scandals, the rows, the failures and the nasty newspaper headlines, most MPs, in my experience at least, would rather solve problems than create them. And Most MPs, regardless of party, try to behave ethically within the rules and the law. The Bunker's guest today knows all about this. Sir Chris Bryant is Labour MP for the Ronda, chair of the House of Commons Committees of Standards and Privileges, but he also knows the ethics benders and rule breakers who make headlines. The committees he chairs monitor the conduct for MPs and can punish them for breaches. In the case of a former MP called, and here I'll check my notes, Boris Johnson, that has not always gone smoothly. But what's most interesting is not the failings and scandals associated with Johnson or Chris Pincher or Owen Paterson or the expenses scandal or the peccadilloes of any individual MP, but the failures of the British system of governance. We have a bloated House of Lords into which even a disgraced Prime Minister can insert their favourites for life, making our laws. Ethics advisers advise but can be ignored or dismissed if that advice is inconvenient. Their boss is the Prime Minister, who may be, as with Boris Johnson, the very same person they were investigating. Sir Chris Bryant's timely new book, Code of Conduct, Why We Need to Fix Parliament, is a provocative insider's account of this systemic failure, which, whatever your political views, gets in the way of good governance. And Chris is with me now. So welcome to the bunker, Chris. We can abandon the serbit now, I think. (laughs) I won't serve you (laughs) again. Yes, Sir Gavin. Well, I don't know. They wouldn't wouldn't put me in the House of Lords, I think. Anyway, I'm too young. Did I get it broadly right? The whole point of the book is to say that, yes, there's a few people who act badly, but it's really a systemic failure here. Yes, broadly speaking, I I think I'm trying to say two things. First of all, that we have a system in the UK, which is winner takes it all, um, to quote ABBA. And that is a problem because it means that once you've won the general election or once you've got a majority in the House of Commons, prime ministers now tend to think they can do whatever they want. But there's an interesting moment just after the Second World War when Winston Churchill says to Clement Attlee, who is then the prime minister, democracy is terrible, but it's better than all the other things that we've tried. But he then goes on to say, democracy does not just mean winning an election. It means you have to keep on going back to the people because it's the government of the people for the people that really counts. So my first argument is we have a problem in our system. We give far too much power to the prime minister of the day. Um, They can then ride roughshod over anything if they want to. They get to choose when parliament sits, how long it sits for, uh, what it debates every single day of the week, um, how long it has for amendments. Literally, opposition MPs aren't allowed to table an amendment to the police grant, for instance. So that's one. And then the second thing is, 
I think we've got a, sta- a set of standards regulatory systems in the UK which are completely unfit for purpose. It's like crazy paving. There's the Independent Parliamentary Standards Authority. There's the Independent Complaints and Grievance Scheme. There's the Standards Committee and the Privileges Committee, which are two separate committees. There's the Speaker of the House of Commons. There's the Electoral Commission. Um, uh, there's the Ministerial Code. There's the Code of Conduct. There's the Behaviour Code for Parliament. And, and then the rules for the House of Commons and the House of Lords are completely different. It's a complete and utter mess and it needs reform. Right. How much of that, though, is simply familiar? I mean, Lord Hailsham said we risk becoming an elective dictatorship, which is really what you're talking about. A phrase, and, yeah, which and, originally came from Garibaldi. Yes, from, came from Garibaldi. And also the whole question of, uh, you know, we some uh, some academics talk of the good chap theory of government. Well, if people are bad chaps, bad women and whatever. In, in they place, tend to be chaps. They yes. tend to be chaps. Whatever the rules, they seem to be able to get round them if they're in the executive. In other words, if they're in the government, if they're the prime minister. So I've written quite a bit of history of Parliament as well. And, and sometimes it's just worth going back a bit. If you go back to the 19th century, the House of Commons was in charge of its own timetable. So I think, for instance, the fact that this year the immigration, the illegal immigration bill, whatever you think of the rights and wrongs of the bill and the national security bill, whatever, again, you think of the rights and the wrongs of the bill, went through the House of Commons with barely three hours debate on, 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 in the main second reading debate and then even less time for amendments, even though the government itself had tabled hundreds of pages of amendments. So I just think we don't do that job of work properly. If you said, right, I'm sorry, it's not the government's job to run Parliament anymore. It's Parliament's job to run Parliament. You might have more MPs might take that job of legislating more seriously. And, and we might just do it better. We might have better laws in the end. One crazy thing during COVID, we had hundreds and hundreds of the most important pieces of legislation put in place on the back of what is called secondary legislation. I know this sounds really, really nerdy, but it means that the government can introduce it. It comes into force before it's published. Just think that through. It comes into force. It is the law before it's published and it never gets debated in the House of Commons until after it's come into force and sometimes until after it's even been removed from the statute books and it's completely unamendable. So my argument is that we need to see, we need to use a Boris Johnson term to take back control of Parliament. Right. We'll get into those insider points because they affect everybody outside Parliament. In other words, the rest of the country. But just one specific area which everyone will remember. Why do we have a system where the Prime Minister has, quote, ethics advisers who then advise, and as happened with two of them, they quit because Boris Johnson didn't listen to it. And then the Sue Gray report was sort of there, but we know what's happened to Sue Gray. So why do, why do we not have at least something which scrutinises the prime minister in a way that the rest of us can understand without those scrutineers getting booted out? I believe that the ministerial code should be incorporated into the House of Commons code. So minister, you can't be a minister without being a member of either the House of Commons or the House of Lords. It's not written down instantly that anywhere, but it's just the, the convention that you can't be. And so if you've broken the ministerial code, that should mean that you've broken the code of conduct for the House of Commons. There should just be one code and it, apply, it should apply equally to everybody. It, of course, should be adjudicated completely independently of the prime minister. I asked the most recent, the newest one, um, Sir Laurie Magnus, only a couple of weeks ago. It says in the ministerial code that ministers must only announce things to Parliament first when Parliament is in session. So would you investigate if a minister didn't do that? Yes, in theory, he said. Well, what do you mean in theory? What I want is a reform act, a big 
Parliamentary Reform Act, the equivalent of what we had in 1832 to change all these different elements. Well, you might possibly get it in the sense that the amount of uh, distaste for Parliament by people outside, you know, is quite absolutely extraordinary. I mean, you hear over and over something which I don't agree with, but you're all the same. You're only in it for yourselves. And it's all about the money and whatever you can do in personal self-aggrandizement. I don't believe that, but that's how you agree. Most people think... I'm, that all the opinion polling shows that it's got considerably worse in the last few years. And let's face it, in this parliament, at this point, we've had 22 or maybe it's 23 MPs who've been suspended for a day or have left parliament under a cloud before an investigation was completed. That's the highest by a country mile in all of our history. So we really do need to take this seriously. And in part, that's because we, we now, issues that used to be just swept under the Pugin carpet very carefully, like you know, sexual harassment and bullying and stuff, that is now dealt with properly and that is good. Um, but it's also, I think, because, you know, some people say that, that well, there's just one bad apple. They referred to Owen Patterson. Remember the guy who, you know, who was peddling influence around West, uh, Whitehall and Westminster on behalf of his paying clients, Randox and Lynn Foods. Um, uh, people said, well, he's just one bad apple. But that, that it misunderstands the phrase. One bad apple doesn't mean it's an exception. It means that the one bad apple spoils the whole barrel. Blight spreads. But I'm really struck by this because I've taken out a few quotes from your book and you say, this is the worst record of any parliament in our history by a long chalk, which you've just repeated. But you also say in the book that 21 MPs were suspended. So even since the book's gone to the publishers, that figure has gone up. It is absolutely extraordinary. And I'm not counting Chris Pincher in that. So that takes us to 23. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Let me turn to a couple of specifics here. The House of Lords you talk about, and in some ways that's that's one of the easier targets, it seems to me, because it's not elected, because it's because prime ministers can appoint people for life, people we've never heard of who seem to have served in some particular position that we don't really know much about. So what are the chances that it could actually be reformed? Because if you want a reform act to affect the commons, I would just throw, throw that back at you and say attempts at reforming the House of Lords just haven't really been significant enough because it's used as a bit of a dustbin sometimes for prime ministers. Oh, look, I'm, I'm in favour of reforming the whole lot. And I would do the House of Lords as well. I would elect it, wouldn't elect it on the same franchise as the House of Commons. I'd make sure you laid down the respective um, uh, powers of the two houses so that you don't end up with complete and utter gridlock. But I still want a, a two chamber system. But I just think that if you want to put yourself up for running everybody else's lives, which is what legislating is about, then the least you can do is put yourself up for election. So, but, uh, but we also need to change the House of Commons. I'll just give you one tiny example, which is, you, you, some people think of this as a, as a quaint nicety of the way we do things. You can't resign as an MP. That's because there was a motion way back when, um, uh, in the 1620s, I think, which said um, that you couldn't, no, no member of parliament can resign. So the only way you can get out is by being given a, 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 a an office of profit under the crown, like the Chiltern Hundreds. This is a patent nonsense, as Nadine Doris has shown. I mean, she said that she was leaving with immediate effect. And I know she's a notorious publisher of fiction. But nonetheless, the fact that she doesn't understand with immediate effect is quite interesting. So I would change that as well. I'd change so many different things. <laughs> OK, but the pushback is kind of obvious. I, I put to uh, quite a senior member of a government 
involved when Tony Blair was elected in 1997 and I said, why wasn't there more systemic reform of the political system? Because many people in the Labour Party got the idea, that the ideas you're talking about, perhaps proportional representation, really cutting back or getting rid of the House of Lords. And I was told 179 because that was Tony Blair's majority. So any prime minister coming in looks at the system and says, well, maybe it's not so bad after all because I've got elected and I'm in Downing Street. Well, I really hope that Keir Starmer is going to sit down and read my book on his summer holiday and he's going to go, you know what, there's a lot in this and and we need to do, I mean, maybe you won't do, you know, sometimes I come up with ideas which aren't brilliant and fine, let's leave them to one side. Um, but And sometimes we need to bring back some old rules. There was an old, a rule in 1801 which said that a, a gentleman should not, a, a member of parliament should not presume um, to absent themselves from parliament without leave of absence. Well, Nadine Doris hasn't been there for a year, so we could insist perhaps in September that she attends. That would be very, very, very interesting. Now, but let me pick up several specific points in the book. One, lies. There's more lying in Parliament. You talk about a Pinocchio Parliament is one of the things that's sometimes said. Why Why can't that be sorted out? Because everybody makes mistakes. Ministers correct their mistakes. Most of us, most even reasonable people in the press go, they made a mistake, that's OK. But there's lying and they get away with it. Yeah, so... Um, there is refusing to correct the record as well, of course, which I think is really uh, bad. I, I, there's one tiny little bit which we could do very easily, which is we have a formal system for ministers correcting the record, which, inter- interestingly enough, Boris Johnson only ever used on one occasion as a minister, which was to correct the record about whether Ro- Roman Abramovich had or hadn't been sanctioned in relation to his um, finances. We could extend that system to all MPs so that all MPs can correct the record, because you're quite right. Sometimes you just get it wrong. You, you say five million when you meant five billion or whatever, and you should be allowed to correct the record. Nobody cares about that. What they do care about is if the UK Statistics Authority has written to a minister and said, I'm sorry, Mr Sunak, that is point blank wrong. Stop saying it and correct the record. And then if they refuse to correct that, I think the simple thing we could do is we could say, if you refuse to correct the record when that when the UK Statistics Authority has told you off, that is a breach of the Code of Conduct and you can be suspended from Parliament. Likewise, we, we could do a very simple thing, you know. We have a, 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 a thing called naming an MP. So if you, if you grab hold of the mace and swing it around, the, the Speaker will probably name you, throw, them, throw you out of the chamber and you'll be out for five days. You lose your salary for five days because it's grossly disorderly conduct. Well, we've always said that Parliament should be the first to hear from ministers about new policies. Well, why is that not grossly disorderly conduct if they tell the Sunday Times or or Laura Kunzberg or whatever first? We could name them as well. One of the things you say in the book, which I thought was a, a terrific quote, since 1911, the Conservative Party has had 44 treasurers 35 of whom have been given peerages. That's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, obviously, they were in the House of Lords on merit, presumably, not just because they'd given a lot of money to the Tory party. Well, and some of the others, to be fair, were already aristocrats, so they couldn't be given more peerage or Ah. more more titles. And some of them were members of the House of Commons, one of whom was thrown out for financial dodginess. So it's patently obvious that you shouldn't be given a place in the legislature because you've given money to a political party. I mean, it's just like... But it was obvious to me that Owen Paterson had been engaged in paid lobbying and that that was morally indefensible. But it wasn't obvious to 250 Tory MPs who voted to protect him. 
At the root of the problem, though, is when you alluded to this at the start, actually, is the two-party system, isn't it? Because, I mean, it doesn't represent the people of this country. We get even Tony Blair's government was elected by 44% of the people. You know, are you straightforwardly in favour of proportional representation? I've always been in favour of PR, but there's lots of different kinds of PR. Mm -hmm. And obviously, if you're going to have two chambers, you don't want them to be elected on the same basis. I love having a constituency. I'm very fortunate in having one of the most famous constituencies in the land, the Ronda. And it's the only seat that's been Labour since 1885 now, since mine has got the vote. I want to have MPs that are still rooted in communities. So I would go for some form of um, top-up system so that it is more proportional. Though, to be fair, in my time as an MP, the 2010-2015 parliament was not it was a hung parliament. Um, and so was the 2017 parliament. And we, I, I managed to get my own piece of legislation through the 2017 um, parliament because there was no government majority. So I, I rather like hung parliaments. I'm not asking this as a silly question, but it would actually help if MPs were paid twice as much or paid the same as a general or paid the same as a high court judge, because uh, would that attract more people who are less interested in getting money outside parliament? Well, the danger is it might just only get people who are only interested in earning £180,000. I don't think that's the issue. I think some of the issue at the moment is social media. It's it's a very, very horrible world out there. I mean, the, I get a lot of abuse, but women and uh, minority ethnic MPs get a, a whole load more. And it is utterly gratuitously uh, vile and abusive. And, you know, well, two of my colleagues have been killed in my time as an MP. Another has been stabbed. Um, several others have had uh, not only death threats, but serious attempts on their life. I'm very conscious of that. And... Uh, that's why I don't subscribe to the all MPs are terrible. And if I sit in the chamber quite often, I'll think I go, oh, yeah, well, Andrea Leadsom, I disagree with her on nearly everything, but she's been really good on early years. Um, Cheryl Gillan, no longer with us, but she did so much work on autism. Um, Diana Johnson, all that work on uh, infected blood. You know, everybody, lots of us have, have, I think, have entered politics for entirely the right reason. But when, you, but the money question comes up time after time, doesn't it? You, you, there's one way of looking at people having outside jobs, which, which is it keeps members of parliament in touch with the real world, whatever that real world will be. On the other hand, you can look like a paid lobbyist for a gambling concern or something else. So for me, the issue about second jobs, everybody focuses on second jobs as if it means that you're not properly devoted to doing your job. And, um, and and some might say, well, writing a book, Chris Bryant, you're a, you're, you, you know, you're, you've got an interest in this, haven't you? I think it'd be a bit difficult to take out writing. In the end, all you have as a politician is words and words in a book are no different from words in a speech or, you know, in a town hall or in the Chamber of the House of Commons. But the real issue isn't second jobs, it seems to me. It's the conflict of interest. Where you have a conflict of interest, you should always um, resolve it in favour of the public interest rather than your private interest. And and we haven't got those rules right yet. So, for instance, you know, we we say that you can have up to 15 percent shareholding in a company before you have to declare it. Well, that's a I mean, you have to the company would have to declare if you have to the stock exchange, if you have more than three percent. So. A lot of these rules need changing and we we treat earned income much more strictly than we do unearned income. Well, I mean, that, that's not right either. Let's talk about some of the cures as well, uh, the potential cures. What actually can be done? Because first of all, I have to say, although I'm personally in favour of constitutional reform, I think PR 
is absolutely the way to go. Eyes glaze over when you say the C word constitution to in, in many public meetings, even though people know there's something wrong in the country. I'd be amazed if I've had five emails on the subject from constituents in my 22 years as an MP. But it is about power. And in the end, that's all politics is about. Politics is about three things. It's about what you believe in, the passions, the, the, whether you're an egalitarian, how you understand egalitarianism. It's about policies and, and speeches and how you do all of that. But it's thirdly about alliances. Um, and your fir- the first alliance you choose normally as a politician is which political party to join. And then because you can't win a vote entirely on your own. So in the disposition, in the deployment of power to effect change in the country, you have to have a system that allows change to happen. And that's why I think all of this is important. First of all, I would say, as I say, I would take back control for the Commons um, of the order paper so that you have a committee elected across the whole House of, I don't know, seven or nine MPs who decide, right, on Monday we're going to do this, Tuesday we're going to do that. No, the illegal immigration bill is not going to have two hours, it's going to have two days so that it's properly debated. Oh, and by the way, all amendments will be treated equally, whether they're from the government or they're from anybody else. Oh, yes. And when it comes to the budget, we'll have a proper budget, which is income and expenditure, just like every county council has. Oh, and incidentally, if you don't turn up for more than six months, just like in a council, then you can be you can be struck out. The core of this has to be somehow limiting executive power and also regulating the executive, by which I mean specifically the prime minister. And that has been an absolutely obvious failure for some years now. Completely. So I think we need to combine, uh, as I said earlier, the, the ministerial code and the co- and the code of conduct. So there's one code uh, regulated by an independent um, uh, investigator um, who can investigate without fear or favour, including investigating the prime minister if necessary. And can't be fired by the prime minister. And can't be fired by prime minister, is responsible to parliament, not to the prime minister. And sure, if the investigator, let's say the investigator investigates Gavin Esler, um, the minister for trade and whatever, and widgets, and says that um, they behaved inappropriately and, and, and breached the code, then the prime minister should decide, should be able to decide whether or not to keep the, Gavin Esler as the minister. But what the House might decide is, well, I'm sorry, that is, that is a breach of the code of conduct of the House, and therefore we're suspending them for five days or 10 days or 20 days or whatever. And then the prime minister can take the flak if they want to. But you have to have a fully independent system. How would it help to have at least a glimmer of a written constitution, a basic laws in Germany. I mean, one of the great things about British and particularly English lawyers is they've written constitutions for people all around the world, and we haven't got one. And so if you're in Germany, you know that Berlin does this and the States, the lender, do something else. We have kind of got a bit in Scotland and then a different bit in Northern Ireland and Wales, as you know, there's a, a, another bit, all of whom are done slightly differently. And England's got very little out of that. So would it actually help to write down who does what broadly? Well, people say we don't have a written constitution. And the truth is we have bits and pieces Mm -hmm. of a written constitution and they've never been knitted together um, into a single um, many-coloured coat. And I I would be in favour of that. It's not one of the things I particularly argue for in in the book. But just as a for instance... I don't think governments should be able to suspend standing orders or change the standing orders of the House of Commons on a simple majority. It should perhaps be on a two thirds majority, because otherwise that that is a route open to tyranny. Mm-hmm. And, and let's I, I, know, I don't want to overstate this argument, but and it always gets dangerous when you mention 1930s Germany. But it is worth bearing in mind that every autocrat in the world 
has or many autocrats, sorry, have started in democratic system and have used the democratic system mm. to dismantle itself. And you said reform the House of Lords. I mean, you want you want it to be fully elected, but a, a quite more simple way of doing it would be to cut it down to a reasonable size. It's now a roughly eight hundred. Uh, the House of Lords themselves. I was talking to Lord Ricketts about it. He said we wanted three hundred, which is a reasonable amount, isn't it? It is, though I note that all the people who say they wanted to be 300 think that they should be within the 300 and not in the Indeed. 500 that are being um, culled. And that's one of the difficulties. How, how do you decide? I mean, we, we, we had this problem when we got rid of the hereditary peers and, or took them down most to 90. Of them. Most of them, yeah, yes, 92. Exactly. So we've still got the 92. And, 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 of course, they have these hereditary by-elections, which is one of the most black-adder parts of the British Constitution imaginable. And, again, you see, that's in statute law. And... and I was very struck from the death of um, the Queen to uh, King Charles arriving. Every single element of what was done was laid down in statute law. He was only the heir because of statute law. Um, he, he had to make certain declarations because of statute law. So we have got bits of, consti- of a written constitution and we need to knit them all together. But there's another point that's uh, underlying that. What struck me about that moment was we managed to change our head of state and actually our head of government within the same month and nobody got shot. There were no, you know, the only gunfire was celebrations of, uh, and so on. So we, we are quite good at some things. But what your book does is go through so many of the things that are appalling. And we've we've let this happen. Is it is it because people don't care? Well, I think it's sometimes because government is very canny and cunning. I mean, let me just give you one instance: the towns fund. Now, the government says that the towns fund is there to enable the leveling up for of poorer areas of the country with uh, wealthier areas of the country. You would think, therefore, that once they'd done their first scoping exercise, which was deciding which are all the um, uh, the richest and which are the poorest um, areas in the country the most needy. They would then award all the money to the poorest areas. But, oh, no, they didn't. A hefty chunk of the money went to Rishi Sunak's constituency, which is one of the wealthiest in the country. And we all went, oh, yeah, fine, whatever. So I think sometimes we, we, we've got used to governments being so canny and cunning in this way. But we need more checks and balances. I think all those discretionary funds, which incidentally have come on the back of like a 40 percent cut in council budgets, um, since 2010, all those concessionary funds should go. They're utterly corrupt and uh, and corrupting because they make the local MP have to beg the minister for money. I'm struck that nearly every politician I've ever talked to ends up saying they're optimistic. <laughs> and you're smiling. But you have to be to write this book, don't you? I mean, you, you do go through a litany of, I think, quite horrific things sometimes, including the Times Fund and and, uh, who got the money and why they got it. And out of the 500 and something towns involved, one that was nearly bottom of the list in terms of uh, need got the money as well. So how can you still be optimistic that you can get any of this done? Well, I think, A, I am generally an optimist. (laughs) Uh, B, I'm passionate, but I do care about democracy. And I, I and that's partly, I think, because I, I spent five years as a child being brought up in Franco Spain. So I know what um, tyranny is. And I've, I, I'm probably the longest standing critic in Parliament of Putin. I've seen what Russia has done to what you know was a fledgling democracy. And now it's the worst form of authoritarian government. I was in Chile under Pinochet and thrown out back in 1986. So I, I care passionately about democracy. And it's a fragile thing. 
we presume too much on it, I think. And and every generation has an opportunity. Every generation of MPs has an opportunity either to burnish the heirloom or to tarnish it. And I think that this parliament, well, frankly, I think it's it's long past its use by date. I'm trying to think forward to a Keir Starmer government, which obviously you're working towards. He gets into office and finds out we have got the cost of living crisis will continue. We've got a problem with the economy. We've got to sort out some kind of better relationship with Europe, however that's defined. We've got uh, climate change. We've got ULEs and discussing questions about all that that sort of stuff. Where is this going to be on his list of priorities? Because I can see why this underpins everything. That's the good news. But actually, it's kind of the stuff that... I think you would accept, maybe bores a lot of voters. So he's not going to do it, is he? No, I think he will, because I think this is the kind of thing that he believes in. You know, there are those who've criticised Keir um, and said that he spent too much time on all these ethical things and and taking the fight to prosecuting the case, if you like, um, in a loyally way against Boris Johnson and and then against Liz Truss and, of course, now against Rishi Sunak. But I think that that's important. And I, I, I... if Keir was sitting here now, I would say this is as important as uh, as a building block of making a better Britain as any other aspect of what we're going to do over the next 5, 10, 15 years. Well, let's hope he reads the book. Thank you very much, Chris Bryant. Thank you. So Chris Bryant is MP for the Ronda and author of Code of Conduct, Why We Need to Fix Parliament. And listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please support The Bunker on Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, you can get perks like exclusive merch and ad-free episodes. Thanks for listening. This is The Bunker. I'm Gavin Esler. Goodbye. The Bunker Daily was presented by Gavin Esler. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. The producers were Kash Tomasiewicz and me, Alex Rees. Art direction by James Parrott. Socials by Jess Harpin. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.